Welcome to Studio Berlin, our current affairs show here on KCRW Berlin. I'm Monika Müller-Kroll and I'm filling in for co-hosts Sumi Somaskanda and Sylvia Cunningham. This week, we look at the political climate in the US and the battlegrounds leading up to the presidential election. What's going on in the nation's capital and what special role does the southern state of Georgia play in this year's election? A lot is at stake and not just for Americans, also for Germany. This is what some Berliners have to say about the US presidential race. That's my major concern, how the US deals with China, how the US deals with North Korea. The German system is to make a lot of materials export. And if the economy doesn't work well in the USA, so also this have a strong influence uh, here. It's like a cauldron of transformation, the United States. And it's kind of like a huge mirror that reflects also what's going on globally. Later in the show, we'll hear a perspective from Berlin about how the next American president will shape politics on both sides of the Atlantic. But first, we go to the East Coast to get some insight on the final stretch of the race for the White House. Sumi Somaskanda joins me on the line from Washington, D.C. Hi, Sumi. Hi, Monica. Also with us is Katja Ritterbusch. She's a freelance journalist based in Georgia for German and American media outlets. Thanks for joining us, Katja. Thank you for having me, Monica. Sumi, let's start with you. You've lived in Berlin for quite a while, uh, but you are American and you visit the U.S. on a regular basis. So what are your first impressions on the country, revisiting it during a pandemic and, of course, just weeks before the U.S. election? Monica, as you said, I do come to the U.S. regularly to visit my family. But to be here just ahead of an election, such a crucial election, is, of course, a very different uh, experience. It is the first visit back here as well since the pandemic began. And I have to say, just walking around Washington is a completely different experience for me, at least. I know the city to be bustling and, and busy and to see it um, so empty is almost unnerving. You know, so many people are still working from home. Um, some businesses are still closed. So that is a, a different perspective for sure. And on top of that, you get a, a bit of whiplash when you get to D.C. because the news cycle just moves so incredibly rapidly. Uh, you know, just in the past week, we've seen a vice presidential debate, news of a failed coup in Michigan, uh, an attempt to uh, kidnap the governor there. And we've seen the president back out on the campaign trail after having recovered from COVID-19. So uh, just because the pace of things here is so quick, it, you have to kind of get adjusted to catching up. Uh, and I should also say that as a broadcast journalist, I always notice when I come to the U.S. Um, that the media landscape here is incredibly polarized. Uh, we have a bit of that experience in Europe, a bit of that in Germany, where you know where some media outlets uh, lie along the um, the spectrum of, of political views, but not to the extent that you see it in the U.S. So all of that adds for a colorful first uh, few weeks here. And Sumi, what is on voters' minds as the election draws closer? What are the issues, the topics important to them? What do you hear? Well, I'd be hard-pressed to find an issue bigger than the pandemic right now. We have to keep in mind, Monica, that this is a country that has seen more than 212,000 people die, and that number is rising. More than 7.5 million people have been infected, and this has all dealt a massive blow to the economy. So millions of people have lost their jobs, and uh, they don't have much hope for the coming months either. And, and a true recession, at least according to economists, uh, could still be to come, so in the coming year. 
And you have to remember that the president also falling sick. I mean, he was trying to move the narrative a bit away from the White House's handling of the coronavirus pandemic because there has been such criticism. But him falling sick has really brought this issue back into the spotlight. There are infections rising again in places like, for example, um, New York City that had appeared to have brought the outbreak under control there. So uh, I think that really is one of the foremost issues on people's minds. And again, it's hard to um, lose that image when you walk around and see everyone wearing masks and so many businesses closed and shuttered and you don't know if they're going to open again. Katya, let's bring you in. So President Trump's COVID-19 diagnosis has been one of the main topics in the news. What role does his recovery and the outbreak at the White House play in this election? You know, as of right now, it doesn't appear that, you know, the president's COVID diagnosis and the way he has, quote unquote, choreographed his recovery has helped his standing, really. You know, some of the latest polls see former Vice President Biden with a comfortable lead. You know, one poll, I think it was CNN, reported a 16-point lead. You know, according to others, Biden has a nine-point lead. You know, and meanwhile... Trump is acting like, you know, a wounded, angry bull. He's calling Kamala Harris, the Democratic vice presidential candidate, a monster. The other day, you know, he's insulting his own cabinet members. Now, I think it's important to note that none of this really makes a difference for Trump's core base. They're going to vote for him no matter what. And also, um, we should be a little bit wary of polls, right? I mean, we still have about three weeks to go until Election Day. Um, and at this time, four years ago, Hillary Clinton was ahead of Trump in the race. And assume Election Day is fast approaching and you covered the 2016 U.S. election. And uh, as Katia just mentioned, uh, many Democrats and much of the world assumed Hillary Clinton would be the next president. Is there that same confidence this year? What's the energy like in the States uh, this time around? Monica, I'd say there's very little confidence in anything at the moment uh, in the U.S. And I don't mean to paint a dark picture, but I mean in terms of what could happen. As Katya rightly pointed out, over the next three weeks, everything is up for grabs. And indeed, Joe Biden's advisors and his campaign themselves have been very careful in how uh, they respond to questions about Biden's opening a lead in the polls because, um, you know, it, it really could change uh, in the next days, in the next weeks. And Democrats are worried about poll numbers because they think that At, at that point, that could mean that some people don't turn out to vote. And what they need certainly is a very high turnout to ensure a victory for Joe Biden. Uh, and the other thing is, you know, the country really is, and if I look at it compared to the last time I was here, it, this has only grown more pronounced. It is really deeply polarized, not at, only at the fringes of society, but really right through the middle of the country. And That polarization, of course, has it root, has its roots in um, in the years before President Trump came to office, but they really have been laid bare here uh, in the last four years. And Katia, you are in Atlanta, Georgia, a state to watch this year. The last time Georgia voted for a Democratic candidate in the presidential election was in 92 for Bill Clinton. Democrats are hoping the state will go blue this year. What are the polls indicating these days? What's your take on this? Yeah, Georgia is uh, indeed an interesting state to watch this year. You know, it's certainly not your traditional swing state, as you mentioned, 28 years solid Republican, but it clearly is becoming a battleground state. Um, you know, there are 16 electoral votes up for grabs in Georgia, and the polls currently see 
Trump and Biden neck and neck. But again, polls, right? We already thought in 2016 that Georgia could turn blue. But this time, I really think chances are better that it could actually happen, you know, for several reasons. While, you know, most of rural Georgia traditionally votes Republican and is probably still going to do so, uh, the election will be decided in Atlanta and the suburbs, which are becoming much more diverse each year and therefore more democratic, actually. And especially in the suburbs, you know, voter behavior is changing rapidly and not just in Atlanta. Also for Georgia, black voters play a key role and they're supporting Biden 90 plus percent. Um, there are also some other indicators, if you wish. You know, we had a race for Georgia governor in 2018 and the uh, Democratic candidate, Stacey Abrams, lost by only a tiny, tiny margin. I think it was something like 55,000 votes or so to now Governor Brian Kemp. And finally, both of Georgia's Republican, now Republican held Senate seats are up for election. And both could actually flip. You know, probably this may happen if it happens in a runoff election in January. But, you know, that gives sort of in general the race in Georgia an additional push, I may say, towards blue. Okay, we'll see what happens um, in November. Sumi, what do those changing patterns of voting tell us about the U.S. and where it's headed? I think we're seeing a confluence of trends that are really interesting to watch. On the one hand, the country is more tribal than it was in the past. So uh, people are far more polarized. And that means that you don't have that many undecided or swing voters, not as many as you would have at this time before an election, let's say 20 years ago. Uh, you know if you're going to vote Democrat, you know if you're going to vote Republican, and there's not much that can move you from that position. On the other hand, some of the shift that we are seeing that Katya was mentioning is demographic. And that is really fascinating to watch in a state like Georgia, as Katya pointed out, as a large African-American population. And uh, when that population is mobilized to vote, it can make a big impact on the outcome of an election. If the election goes smoothly, there have been some uh, issues with uh, voting, as Katya mentioned, um, both in the gubernatorial race and also primary presidential voting earlier this year. But uh, another state that is one to watch is Arizona. You know, it would have been unfathomable to imagine a state like Arizona ever possibly going blue, so voting for a Democrat. But because there is such a large Latino population and a young Latino population, um, that is a group that traditionally and, and typically does vote for the Democrats. So we're seeing a bit of a shifting pattern and redrawing of some of the map. Uh, and I think that will be the interesting trend to watch over the coming years. So millions of Americans have already voted and there's been a lot of uncertainty about voting itself, with the president claiming that mail-in voting is fraudulent and that the election will be rigged. How is that going in Georgia, Katja? I actually just did a story about that for German public radio. I think, of course, that's a narrative that the Trump administration has been trying to push and spread, that the U.S. Postal Service is incapable of hand handling the huge amount of mail-in ballots that I expected this year, you know, due to the pandemic, and that mail-in voting is basically a recipe for massive voter fraud. And so far, things seem to be on track, you know, um, going okay in Georgia, and I believe most other states from what I've, I've seen and and what I've read, and every expert I've spoken with told me um, that large-scale voting fraud with mail-in ballots is not something that's been happening in America.
American presidential elections. It happened on the local level uh, from time to time. It happened on the state level, but not really national. But one thing is also true. Mail-in ballots are just more vulnerable to mistakes, you know, not necessarily fraud, but mistakes, mostly mistakes made by voters, but also technology glitches, like when voters fill out the ballot incorrectly, for example, or, you know, uh, forget, forget to sign it, or the scanner can't read the signature and reports a mismatch. You know, all that is happening, but we also have to see that with the attacks on the Postal Service, President Trump is kind of already preparing for a scenario that the election result may not be to his liking, and then he is probably going to claim voter fraud caused by mail-in ballots. Sumi, do you want to add uh, something? Whether the election day will go smoothly, I think it will. I mean, we have to remember that the U.S. is is still a, a large and vibrant democracy, and in most places, people can vote without a problem. But I think what we are going to see is in the days and weeks after the election, there will be a lot of litigation. And that's why both sides, the Democrats and Republicans, have kind of built up an army of lawyers <laughs> preparing for that period um, to uh, take whatever decision uh, comes out of election day, possibly to court. Katia, you immigrated from Germany to the States in 2005. So you've observed quite a few election campaigns since then. Is there something you feel Germans or Europeans don't get about the U.S. election? You know, for the past 15 years, I feel like I've had to be sort of an interpreter or explainer of America to Germans. And uh, for that matter, an increasingly desperate one, I have to say. But um, where I feel like the biggest misunderstandings and misconceptions are, you know, when it comes to the elections, but also life and politics in the U.S. in general, is that America is such a huge and vastly diverse place that it's really hard to grasp for Europeans. I mean, I'm, I still have a hard time uh, to grasp this. And I, I feel like my work as a journalist and my work as a journalist, I have to constantly challenge stereotypes, even more than usual. And it's a constant yes, but type of approach. You know, a, a good example is the, the COVID response in the US. You know, why are the numbers so high? Why is the situation so bad? That's what I'm constantly being asked. And yes, the response by the Trump administration has been a disaster. I mean, delays, mismanagement, misinformation, mistrust in science, all of that. But it's not the only reason why things have gotten so bad. You know, there is the the public health infrastructure and the way the American healthcare system is set up, very fractured, very incoherent. And um, that has been there long before Trump, you know, even at the time when Obamacare was in full swing and working well. Also, you have like aspects like population density and medical infrastructure, which varies widely from state to state. You know, it's a difference whether you live in New York or in South Dakota. And that's a tricky thing to ex to understand and to um, to explain. And I totally get that. And I'm curious, uh, apart from politics, I mean, how do you see the relations between the U.S. and Germany? It's sort of a cliche that Germans love to explore the U.S. They dream of driving down Route 66. And so what do you hear from friends and family back home these days? Pandemic aside, is there still that excitement about visiting the States uh, or... Have the politics these past four years changed that dynamic? You know, Monica, since you mentioned Route 66, it's interesting. Just last year, one of my best friends in Germany, from Berlin actually, 
she and her family drove down Route 66 or, you know, a portion of it. And she told me she will be back as soon as the pandemic is over. You know, same with most family. But I must say that my circle of friends in Germany or those that I consider, you know, true, true friends has gotten quite a bit smaller over the last couple of years. And it's because, you know, anti-American sentiments are alive and well in Germany, as you know. You know, bashing America has become very much en vogue, so to speak, you know, not just on the far left and the, the far right. And when I speak with Germans these days, and I'm, you know, not talking about my closest friends, but and not everyone, obviously, but some acquaintances and some colleagues, I often sense this sort of air of moral superiority or, you know, lecturing, patronizing, quite arrogant tone, actually. And I think, you know, how dare you? It, it, it really rubs me wrong. And it's important to note, I think that it's been like this, not just since President Trump took office, but um, anti-Americanism has been growing and has been brewing even under President Obama. When I immigrated to the U.S. in 2005, that was under the Bush administration. And now with Trump, I think many tend to forget that Germans used to hate Bush almost as much as they hate Trump now. Um, but I do remember these times very clearly. And therefore, I'm not really surprised when I get questions like, you know, how can you live in the U.S.? When are you moving back? You know, what's, your, what's, what's wrong with you Americans? So I'm not, I'm not surprised and I hear it quite a lot. Unfortunately, we are out of time. So one more question to both of you. Where will you be on November 3rd? What will you be doing? Katja, you go first. Well, for me, I would love to, you know, go join an election party or host an election party, but we're in the middle of the pandemic. So I'll probably be at home working and um, with a lot of alcohol, I think. And Sumi? I'll be here in D.C., not so much alcohol, unfortunately. Uh, I will be covering the election from D.C. for uh, DW, Germany's uh, international broadcaster. And uh, I will be giving updates on what's been happening and also uh, be interviewing some guests from around the country and also from Europe. That's it, ladies. Thank you, Sumi. Sumi Sumaskanda is co-host of Studio Berlin and currently in Washington, D.C. to cover the U.S. election for Deutsche Welle. Thanks for having me. And thank you, Katja. Katja Ritterbusch is a freelance print and radio journalist for German and American media outlets based in Atlanta, Georgia. Thank you for having me. That was fun. We are taking a short break and when we come back, we hear from a Capitol insider and public policy advisor based in Berlin. Stay tuned. I'm Marco Werman. Each day, we give you the world. They don't want people driving into the center of London. The world is curious. It's a total chaos in Venezuela right now. The world is surprising. The Australian government is completely clueless. The world is unexpected. The Japanese really have made history today. The world is right here. Join us. Tune in to The World, Tuesday through Saturday at 9 a.m. on KCRW Berlin. I'm Todd Zwillick. We named 1A after the First Amendment. It's for everybody, especially the curious. And because things are rarely black and white, 1A brings you all the colors. Join me weekdays and keep listening to this NPR station throughout the day. Tune into 1A, weekdays at 4 
on 104.1 KCRW Berlin. Welcome back to Studio Berlin. I'm Unika Müller-Kroll, the executive producer of Studio Berlin. On today's show, we are talking about the final stretch of the race for the White House. We just got some impressions from Washington, D.C. and Atlanta, Georgia. And now we are getting a perspective from Berlin on how the U.S. election might affect policies in Germany and the EU. Joining me on the phone now is Andrew Adair, a public policy advisor and lawyer based in Berlin. Good to have you, Andrew. Hi, Monica. Good to be here. Andrew, we just heard that there's still this uncertainty whether to trust the polls. At least that's what uh, Sumi and Katya were saying. Everything is possible. What do you think? You know, I think that we have to take a step back and realize, first of all, polling is not an exact science. Number one, there are margins of error. And number two, in 2016, it was a much more volatile race between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. 538, which is a very respected polling outfit, at the end predicted that Hillary Clinton would win by three points. And she really did, in the terms of the popular vote, win by three points. So, you know, the polling really wasn't that off. I think, though, that people were so shocked that such an unconventional, unusual candidate like Donald Trump could actually become the president of the United States. So the sort of suspension of disbelief, I think, is what has stuck with people. But in terms of this race, I think it's okay to uh, trust the polls. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris right now have a very big, very durable lead. And they've had this lead for months now. There hasn't been a lot of up and down like there was in 2016. So, I mean, I think their lead is, is really beyond the margin of error at this point. And I think that's why most, most of the betting money is on Biden-Harris right now. And um, Andrew, here in Germany, I think most coverage of the U.S. election leads us to believe that transatlantic relations will greatly improve if Joe Biden becomes the next uh, president. It seems like that there are just a few critical voices saying not so much would actually change under Biden. What's your perspective? You know, first and foremost, I think the tone will change. And that's, um, you know, that can't be underestimated. You know, Kamala Harris in The vice presidential debate last week, I think, very succinctly said that, you know, diplomacy and international relations is really about relationships. Uh, and I think that's right. Some of the policy um, decisions will also change. I mean, Biden has said they will reenter the Paris Climate Accord, that they will try to, you know, explore picking up the pieces of the Iran nuclear deal. You know, Biden will have a very strong atmospheric and actually real commitment to NATO. So those things are, are going to be different. What might stay the same, and this might be sort of related to some of those concerns, is you know, Nord Stream, the pipeline, for example. You know, the Biden position is the same as the Trump position. I think a lot of issues that revolve around trade. So Biden's industrial policy is quite protectionist, and that will continue on sort of in, in a similar flavor as the Trump industrial policy. So I think, you know, in terms of German business, for example, it's not going to revert back to, you know, sort of the free trade doctrine. I think the trade policy will remain challenging for Germany and for Europe. Andrew, let's get back to the States. We also heard in the first part of the show that Georgia 
is a state to watch. Uh, it plays a special role um, this year. Can you elaborate? Where Georgia is really interesting is with respect to Senate control. So right now, the U.S. Senate is controlled by Republicans by a majority of 53 to 47. So the Democrats are looking to flip at least four seats to gain the majority. And so if the Democrats win the Senate, that will open up a very big playing field in 2021 in terms of what can be achieved. So when you think about things like gun violence, health care, you know, election reform, police reform, a lot of these big ticket domestic policy items are going to have a lot more traction in a Democratic Washington if they can get the Senate. If the Senate cannot flip and it remains in Republican hands, then the policy agenda will be much more restricted. So as your guest Katya said, there's two Senate seats open in Georgia. The Republicans are favored to hold both of those seats. But um, we saw this in 2018, for example, in Texas, Beto O'Rourke ran against Ted Cruz. He lost that race, but he, he ran such a, an effective campaign. He really juiced the turnout. So I would expect to see something like that in Georgia. Biden-Harris are going to juice the uh, Democratic turnout in Georgia and could, in that respect, um, contribute to flipping these Senate seats. So I think that's where, where Georgia could play a really interesting role in this, um, this election cycle. Regardless of who will be the next U.S. president, uh, what policies do you see as crucial in the coming year? Also, of course, affecting Europe and, and Germany. So what, one of the things that I think is going to be really interesting to watch is in, in January, if the Democrats win the Senate, will they reform the filibuster rule, which allows the minority party to hold up legislation? This is a, kind of an inside baseball debate, but it's a very important debate. It's one that's popped up over the years. You know, President Obama, when he spoke at John Lewis's funeral a couple of months ago, actually gave uh, Democrats sort of a, a permission slip to reform the filibuster. And, and the reason this is important is if they do change this rule, which will be very controversial, it will allow them to uh, do everything that they want without participation from the minority party. So that's where I think you'll see a lot of ambitious stuff with respect to climate, for example. If this happens, Europe will see that the United States suddenly is you know, back on the playing field in terms of wanting to um, cooperate on climate. You know, Joe Biden has a very ambitious climate uh, policy, carbon neutrality. You know, you can call it the Green New Deal. So, you know, of course, they say it's not the Green New Deal, but the, the bottom line is it's an ambitious policy and it would put the United States in the same league as Europe um, and other, you know, leaders on climate. So that's obviously big. And then the other thing I think is, What can the United States and Europe do together with respect to China? Europe has also become very skeptical about China when it comes to foreign direct investment, 5G, all these, these different issues about Chinese influence. And Europe wants to team up with the United States to create you know, democratic alternatives to the Chinese model and to preserve those democratic alternatives. And they haven't found a partner with the Trump administration. So if the Biden administration comes in, I think you'll see that's going to be another big shift that is going to um, work to Europe's advantage. And actually, um, Andrew, where will you be on November 3rd? In Berlin or in Washington, D.C.? Well, I was hoping to be in the U.S., uh, but I think I'm going to be here in Berlin. I haven't actually um, 
gotten on a plane since March. So um, right now, I think <laughs> I think the safe play is to just stay put. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you, Monica. Andrew Adair is a lawyer and public policy advisor based in Berlin. I'm Monika Müller-Kroll, and next week, Sylvia Cunningham will be back behind the microphone to host the show. Remember, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Have a good week.